in an, an ad that appeared on the newspaper, there was this, uh, this ad, farmer wants to marry woman, age 35, with tractor. Send picture of tractor. <laughs> and, and we laugh at this, but, but it ought to cause us to think about just what kind of trait makes a woman attractive. Uh, today, as I said, we're going to continue our study on God's pattern uh, for a godly woman in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you haven't turned there yet, I encourage you to do that. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And our desire as we look at this is to see what the Word of God says about the the qualities that God thinks are important for women who profess to know Him. Now, I, I've said before that uh, sometimes uh, being a, a preacher that preaches um, exponentially through the Word, um, we come to things that we would maybe rather skip over. Uh, but we can't do that. We've got to teach what the Bible says. And so this is a subject that I know isn't a very popular subject, but two weeks ago, as, as well as last week, we were involved in a discussion that started this whole thing about the topic of prayer and the public worship of the church during this study in chapter in, in 1 Timothy. And so that topic of prayer leads us into the instruction that Paul gives to women in the church. Now, now, some have accused Paul of being uh, too old-fashioned here, uh, or have accused him of being a male chauvinist. Why? Well, he's a man. What authority does he have to talk about women? How can he be objective in this matter of women in the church? If it weren't for the fact that, that we're talking about God's Word here, uh, I think I'd be a little sheepish of uh, dealing with this subject, too, uh, about women. But I want us to understand a couple of fundamental truths here as we begin again today. First of all, when God created Adam and Eve, he made them very different than everything else that he created in the world. Um, and, and so the Bible tells us that when he created man, he created man and woman in his image man and woman in his image. So God, God did uh, not, in his creation of women, make the woman inferior to the man. So we're not talking about women being inferior here. His intent was for her to be a side-by-side -side partner in the work that God has given to mankind. Also, we can, we can look at Jesus Christ in the New Testament as he is such an example for us. In his ministry on earth, he treated women with respect and dignity. He never spoke to them in a way that made little of them. And his interaction with women was, was one of complete integrity. And so we know that God's gift of salvation is for everyone. It is without partiality. So his salvation's gift of salvation is for men, his gift of salvation for women. There's no partiality there at all. God's word teaches men to respect women and to guard against actions or words that would put women down. 
It's important for us to understand these things, that we believe these things, and we stand firm on them. It is important that we also understand that the Bible is not man's opinion, but it is the inspired word of God. And so God's word is timeless. So we can't say, well, that was for back in the days of Paul. That doesn't have to do with us today. No, it is timeless. And so even though we study passages in light of their context, and in doing that, we study it in light of their culture, in, in, in light of, of uh, what was going on in that time of, of, the, um, uh, of, of the world, uh, God's word transcends the generations. The fact that the Bible is inspired by God makes it impossible to accuse Paul of bigotry towards women as we look at these passages. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture, including the passage that we're looking at today. So this passage of Scripture that we started looking at last week and we continue to look at today about a woman's role in the church today are not man-made rules, but they are God-given instructions for the church and therefore a reason and a purpose that I believe that we'll understand by the time we're finished with this lesson today. And so as we look at verses 9 through 15, we realize that apparently Timothy was facing gender-related issues in the church of Ephesus, and so Paul is giving him counsel on these matters in these verses. So over the last couple of weeks, we have discussed the importance of men praying in church, and this is not to say that women are not to be praying in the church, but in, in some way it appears that the men in the church of Ephesus were neglecting their responsibility for leadership in the church, and as a result, the women were taking over in place of the, the, the men. And so there is no condemnation here of women by Paul. He is not, he is not condemning them for what they are doing. He is not it, 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 in, he, he does not exclude them at all from praying in the church. But what he is doing here in the area of prayer is he is rebuking the men for not doing their part, for not taking the leadership in praying in the church and being the spiritual leaders in the church. So Paul, Paul has just given instruction here about how the men ought to be conducting themselves in the church in verse 8. He is in the midst of the instruction on prayer and, and, con, and, and conduct in the corporate worship service. So he says here in verse 8, we looked at it again last week, but he says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting in like manner also is how verse 9 begins. So the introduction by Paul in, in verse 9, in like manner, indicates he's still talking about prayer, but he goes beyond the immediate need of prayer in the church at this time. So beginning in verse 9, we enter the area of our study in chapter 2 that tends to be a bit controversial, in, not only in our society, but also in a lot of churches. 
In fact, Ray Stedman uh, was aware of this when he entitled a sermon that he preached, Adam's Rib or Women's Lib, uh, when he preached on this particular subject. So he knew that there were some issues here. And so I want us to begin here by looking at verse 9. In like manner also that the women adore themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braiding hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now we need, we need to understand that Paul is not saying that the women should dress in an unattractive manner. We talked quite a bit about this last week, so I don't want to go deeply into this. But Dr. Wilbur Welsh was a former president of Grand Rapids Baptist College and Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's now known as Cornerstone University. But back in the day, I remember, I remember listening to him preach many times. But he said Paul's instruction that the women of the church adorn themselves modestly is not part of an anti-attractive campaign. He's not campaigning for women to be unattractive. In fact, he said they should adorn themselves. They should adorn themselves, not distract. And so their apparel was to be modest. There was to be no extravagance or undue emphasis placed upon a woman's physical attraction. So again, Paul is not telling us that the women shouldn't be attracted, shouldn't adorn themselves attractive. No, they should adorn themselves. Just don't go over the top is what we talked about last week. So in the Greek, the word uh, that the King, New King James translates as modest, it, it means well-arranged, seemingly decent, orderly. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about women. A, a godly woman's apparel will be marked by modesty and decency. And, and we don't have to look very far in our society today for women in our culture of immodest apparel. We are assaulted with images of scantily clad women on television and in the checkout lines and magazine racks. And, and just by going out in the public, we encounter individuals whose dress is immodest. And so let's face it. We live in a society that does not respect the bounds of common decency in attire. Both, we said last week, on women and men's part. I've seen some men out in the public that I thought, man, what are you trying to do? As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to allow the word of God, not the culture around us, to set the standard for the way in which we dress. And you know, the more that I studied this passage, the more convinced I was that our failure to read it and apply its teaching results in behavior on one extreme or the other. Both men and women may be guilty of either becoming passive to the point of not not exercising their God-given gifts and abilities, or they become domineering and, and, and treat the other in an unbiblical way. Now, now maybe you heard about the guy who, who read this book entitled Man of the House. He read that one day on his commute home from work, and, and so having finished the book, and now an enlightened husband stormed into the house 
and confronted his wife right off the bat, and he pointed his finger at her, and he said, from now on, I want you to know that I am the man of this house, and my word is law. And tonight you're going to prepare me a gourmet, gourmet meal and a sumptuous dessert, and then when I'm done eating, you're going to draw my bath water, and when I'm finished bathing, you're going to comb my hair for me, and you're going to get my chair all situated so I can sit there comfortably. And he said, um, he said what do you have to say about that? She said... See if the funeral director will do it for you. <laughs> uh, well, that's one of the extremes <laughs> that we want to avoid this morning as we study this text. So let me just share quickly the outline we looked at last week. Number one, we talked about consider a beauty, and we looked at verses 9 and 10. We, we had two sub-points. She knows She's known for her modesty. And number two, and, and the key, key word there in verse 9 was modesty. And then she's known for her charity. And then we, we started looking at consider her behavior in, uh, in verses 11 to 14. And having addressed the woman's beauty, Paul turns to her behavior. And the first sub-point, um, we, we talked some about this, and that is she embodies biblical humility. And so this is as far as we got last time. When we read verse 11 when Paul writes, and let the woman learn in silence with all submission. And we talked about the fact that for Paul to even write that women could learn was a step forward given the way many of the rabbis viewed women of his day. And we, we read a few of those things as we were wrapping up last week. And so let's pick up our study now by moving along in verse 11. Paul says that the woman is to learn in silence with all submission. And we said we would address this issue of silence. That, that word silence there does not mean that women cannot talk at all in a worship service. It doesn't mean that. We mentioned last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, that, that uh, uh, talks about women praying in church, for example. So women, Paul talks about women praying in church in 1 Corinthians. And, and the, the, the Greek word here in verse 11 is probably best translated, the word for silence, in English word quiet, as, as some other translation has. And so she learns quietly. In other words, she is not negatively argumentative, but embodies a humble spirit of learning. Furthermore, he says, with all submission. Now, here's a, here's a reference to the woman's role of gracious submission to servant leadership of her husband at home and to her teachers at church. Now, let's flesh this out a little bit in the next few verses here and understand, because I know that that kind of rubs, that word submission rubs some people the wrong way, and particularly women, and I understand that. But Paul is, Paul is treating the behavior of the godly woman here. He says that the godly woman embodies biblical humility, but he said she embraces biblical authority. Now, the last word here as we, as we look at verses 13 and uh, 13 or 12 down through 14 now, um, we, we see uh, that, that again, he's talking here about silence. The, the word silence is the same Greek word 
we just mentioned, it is better translated, again, in, in quietness. Again, referring to the humble spirit of a godly woman who lovingly and graciously learns and lives in a Christ-like way before others. Now, let's look at this a little bit more closely at the first part of verse 12. Paul writes and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now, this, this verse clearly and uh, clearly uh, forbids women from doing two things where men are involved, teaching or having authority over men. Why? Why, Paul? Well, just hang on. He's going to get to that. But before we go, go any further there, we need to remember the necessity of comparing Scripture with Scripture. If we're really going to understand what he's saying here, we need to listen to it all. We need to compare Scripture to Scripture. That is, we, need, we, we, we know from other places in the Bible that Paul is not forbidding women to teach at all. He's not doing that at all. In fact, Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, and verses 3 to 5, for example, that women are to be teachers of good things, that they, they admonish the young women to love their husband, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husband. So women here are encouraged in the Bible to teach other women. Women are also encouraged, of course, to teach children. Paul mentions Timothy's learning from childhood uh, the wonderful teachings of his godly grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 and chapter 3 and verse 15. It, it seems clear enough then that in both home and church, women are encouraged to teach other women and to teach children. And so Paul, Paul is not saying here that the woman may not teach at all, but rather he's saying that a woman should not teach a man or have authority over a man. And he is speaking, again, understand this, he's speaking in the context of the, the gathered Christian assembly. In other words, he's talking about church. Uh, and, and that is, the, the scripture forbids a woman from teaching a man in the public gathering together of men and women for biblical instruction. And that would include not only uh, right here in the church, but any gathering together of men and women for biblical teaching, including parachurch groups or organization. So, so much of what we see on Christian television, though, involves just this. You see a popular woman preacher or teacher, and she is teaching to a large group where men and women are both present. And so we get the idea, well, it must be okay, because this is a very popular woman, and she's preaching away, and there are men there. But for what Paul is saying, that that is not biblical. Now, now, this does, uh, uh, again, does not mean that uh, a man cannot learn a thing or two from women. I mean, how many of you ladies believe that your husband or other men can learn a thing or two from you? <laughs> I think most of you would say, well, how much time you got, Pastor? <laughs> well, I, I agree. I agree that there's a lot that we can learn from women. And more importantly, the scripture agrees to that. 
I mean, the Bible tells us that a man by the name of Apollos learned a thing or two from a wonderful Christian couple in the private context of their home. In Acts chapter 18, the Bible says that this godly couple, Aquila and Priscilla, took Apollos aside and helped him to understand the scripture more adequately. And they did not do it in public, they did it privately. So Paul is addressing here the public teaching where men and women are present. And he says that women should not teach the scripture to men. Why is that, Paul? Well, hold on just a little bit. Verse 12, not only forbids women from teaching men, but it forbids women from having authority over men. We see that there in, in verse 12, again, when he says to us, um, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And so there, there are two things there. Paul says, does not permit a woman to teach or have authority. So any role in the church that involves authority is limited to a man. The most obvious role, of course, is that of a pastor. A pastor is the shepherd of the flock the spiritual leader of the congregation. And while he has authority in this role, he is under the authority of the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is also under authority. But he has authority in the sense of leading and providing and protecting the flock. And so the Bible restricts the pastorate to that of men. Verse 12 makes this abundantly clear, especially given the fact that the primary role of the pastor is to teach. He teaches the scripture. That is the pastor's main duty. Now, all of this does not surprise the majority of us. I mean, after all, we, we are independent Baptists, and we have believed this way for, for years. And we believe this way not because were some strange kind of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals, but because we interpret the scripture in a plain, straightforward manner. What the word of God says. So we must also stress that verse 12 does not forbid women from serving in leadership outside of the church. And this is important because it amazed me, there's been a couple of times recently um, and, and we have a situation right now where uh, back when McCain was running for office, you remember Sarah Palin was going to be the vice president, and there were fundamental Baptist people that were saying, well, we can't vote for a woman to have authority in, in the government. And now we have Camelia Harris, and, and there were people saying, we can't, we can't vote for it. The Bible says nothing about the woman having authority, even over men, in the area of, of, of the public around us. It's talking here about the church. And so verse 12 does not forbid women in that way. This verse is, 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 is not a text that we can use for that. It is dealing with the matter of the context of the gathered Christian community, primarily the church. Now, it's important to stress all of this because some would like to read verse 12 differently. While, while the, the growing popularity of an unbiblical form of 
feminism is creeping into so many churches. Some look at verse 12 and they said, well, we've, we've missed this all along. This is just Paul saying this. This isn't Jesus. Jesus would never talk this way. Or, well, Paul was just writing out of the domineering patriotic, patriotic, Arctic, the past, <laughs> culture that he lived in in his day. And, and, well, we need to first remember 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And admittedly, the Apostle Paul was a fallible human being. He even referred to himself back in verse 15 of chapter 1 as the chief of sinners. But then what about Peter? Peter was a fallible being too. And, and, and as far as that, what about Luke and John and all of the other biblical writers? You see, the doctrine of biblical inspiration authority teaches us that the Holy Spirit used fallible men human beings to produce an infallible book. And so it's not whether Paul is fallible or prone to make mistakes. It is that God used Paul as God used countless other writers in such a way as to produce an infallible book, the Bible, which is God's holy word. So as to whether Paul was writing out of the domineering uh, culture of his day, we, we can't go there either, as we'll see in just a moment. But let me just say this first. Would you charge the Lord Jesus Christ with the same charges? Is it not significant that where it came to leadership, that Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples? Is it not significant that the apostles were all men? You see, there, there is a reason for what Paul teaches here in verse 12. And to that reason, we are going to look now. What is the reason for Paul teaching in verse 12? Why did Paul say that women may not teach a man or have authority over a man? Well, he gives the reason in the next two verses. If you look at verse 13 there... <clears throat> He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Just notice that for a minute. That Paul backs up what he says in verse 12 with scripture. If you ask Paul, Paul, why did you say that a woman must not teach or, or have authority over man? He would answer because of scripture. Because of what the scripture teaches us. Don't miss that. He goes back to scripture to address this. Paul appeals to the scripture to defend what he says in verse 12. And this is very similar to what Jesus did in Mark chapter 10 when asked about marriage and divorce. When he was asked by the Pharisees whether divorce was permissible, Jesus quoted scripture and took them to the very text that Paul takes us to here in verse 13. He takes us to the doctrine of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And doing so, you see, suggests that this, this teaching here in, 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 in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this teaching transcends time and culture. 
And the reason Paul's teaching here should never change is because the order of creation has never changed. Paul said Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Paul's point here is that there is a divine order that God intends with respect to men and women, and this order was given before the fall in the garden. Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's significant. This does not mean that one is superior and the other inferior. No, no, not, not at all. That's not, that's not what this is, is talking about. The two are equally created in the image of God. And so men and women are equal in their essence, but they are different in their roles. I mean, think, for example, of the Trinity. The Trinity tells us that God is one in essence, though there are three distinct persons in the Trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are all co-equal. In other words, they all possess all of the attributes. They are all fully God, but they have different roles and functions. Similarly, men and women are essentially equal before God, but they have different roles and functions. Man is the spiritual leader, and the woman graciously follows his servant leadership. In fact, the very text Paul quotes shows us how these roles were reversed in the fall. I mean, think about that. By being passive, Adam abducted his role as a spiritual leader, thus allowing Eve to partake of the forbidden fruit. Eve suppressed Adam's role as a leader, partook of the fruit, sin entered into the world. You see the, the role reversal here? That's why after sin entered into the world in the garden, God did not come asking questions of Eve first. You think he didn't know that Eve was the one that took the apple first? Or whatever the fruit was. God knew. But he addressed Adam. Because Adam was the one that was to be the leader, the protector. So he comes to Adam. Why? Because he was formed first. Because he was the spiritual leader. His role was that of a leader, protector, and provider for Eve. He abandoned that role, and Eve sinned because she was not acting under the protective headship of Adam, her husband. And this is what Paul explains in, in verse 14. He says there in, in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, so Adam was not deceived. Now please understand, that does not mean that he didn't sin. In fact, when the Bible talks about sin and being passed on to all who are born of man... It is Adam's sin. Unlike Eve, Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. The woman was deceived. Why? Because she is more gullible. No, not at all. She was deceived because Adam failed to provide leadership and direction and protection. 
He was formed first. That was his responsibility to protect Eve from the serpent. That was his role. But he became passive and Eve usurped that role and was consequently deceived by the serpent. So because she was not acting under the protective headship of her husband, she fell into transgression and brought sin into the world. And so Paul is, is reminding us that God has a divine order with respect to men and women. There's nothing wrong with that. Men are to be the spiritual leaders in their home. They are to be the spiritual leaders in their church. And women are to graciously and lovingly follow that leadership. So the godly woman embraces biblical authority, recognizing that she is not to teach or have authority over a man. So the man is to rise up and lead. The problem is, is men are unwilling to do that in churches. So just as we talked about with respect to prayer, so men are to rise up and take the lead in the area of teaching. If they are gifted, and lead a class, they need to do that. Women may help men do this by assuming that role, them, by, by not assuming that role themselves. Say, no, we're, we've got men in our church, they need to do that. They need to be challenged and taught how to do that. It's interesting that in the book of Judges, we read about a woman, one woman rising among the men to lead because apparently none of the men would do so. And so the book of Judges, God raises up a woman by the name of Deborah to essentially rebuke a man named Barak for not getting up and leading as he should. And it was a rebuke. So where, where a woman was used by God to lead, it was in fact for the purpose of judgment upon the man. So it wasn't to be taken as the norm but rather quite the exception. It is as though God is saying, you men need to get up out of your seats and lead. Rise up, O men of God. Men are to recognize their God-given role in the church and rise up to fill it. Alistair Beggs, uh, many of you know that I, I love to go to his conferences, love his preaching, solid man. He, he tells an interesting story about a woman that he heard speak about her work with, uh, with Cliff Bible Translations. And she explained how she and a female colleague had gone to a remote tribe in South America and they began the translation of First Timothy. And, and there was a man there who was the translator for the village. And in the course of this work, the woman and her friend taught and, and, and worshiped as best they could, and they shared their faith with those who were there. And after some time, this man came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And as he trusted in Christ, he continued to translate the New Testament. And when he came to this section and translated it, he said to the female missionaries, Now you must stop, and I must start. And they stopped, and he did start. He was willing to rise up and take the position that God intended him to have. Up until that time, God was using the women because there, there was no man that knew Christ. And so, so it, it's not as complicated and, and as we make it. 
it's, it's a beautiful thing when it all works together. And so finally then, consider her, her blessing. Um, number one, she has a wonderful blessing. The first part of verse 15 says, Nevertheless, she shall be saved and shall bear it. Now, men and women have different roles, and I believe verse 15 addresses the woman's role, and I believe this means that she will be saved from the consequences of usurping the authority of men by accepting her God-given role. And that role is best illustrated in this text in childbearing, in motherhood. Paige Patterson uh, said that the calling to be a Baptist preacher is the second greatest calling. The first greater calling is to be a mother. Now, please understand that, that I don't think that this means that every woman is going to be a mother. God is the one that opens the wombs and closes the womb. And, and so when a woman is unable to have, have children, it isn't her fault. God is the one that opens and closes the womb. But I think that just the, it just makes a good illustration of a woman accepting her role, whatever it is that God has for her. I mean, traditionally we think of womanhood as being a mother. And we know that some can't be mothers. But that's, that, that's okay, because God knows what he's doing. But she has a wonderful role in God's, in God's um, plan. But number two, she has a wonderful responsibility. In the second part of verse 15 there, it goes on and says, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So here are four virtues women should embrace. Faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And so let me just add that while the text addresses a couple of things women are forbidden to do, a couple of things, that there are a number of things that women may do in the church. And let me just give you real quickly a, a, a few. Women can, like I said, two things that they're not to do. And here, here's just a small list. Uh, they can do personal witnessing, evangelism. They can pray influencing the culture by their words and example. They can sing, music ministry, helping in youth ministry, giving testimony, adding, uh, addressing mixed audience, men and women concerning insights and experiences, advancing the spread of the gospel through missions on the mission field. Women have historically taught that, that govern, governance and authority teaching is to be done by men, uh, teaching a women's Bible class, leading the, and teaching in various women's ministry area, teaching young women about godly behavior, teaching children, writing biblical literature, including Bible teaching lessons and scholarly theological papers, ministering to the sick, ministering to elders, ministering to disabled, ministering to poor, ministering to prisoners, ministering to all church members, fighting against abortion, fighting against pornography and other social ills, writing to governmental leaders concerning righteous causes, teaching people to read and write, counseling, whether it's spiritual or financially, and many, many other things. What more do they, what more do women want to do? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I, I'm not trying to be mean at all. But I'm saying, Paul isn't saying there's nothing for women to do in the church. He's not saying just, you know, come and the men and do everything. That's not it at all. Men are to teach and to protect and to lead. And women are to follow godly leadership. And when a pastor or a man in the church is not doing it in a godly way, 
then there are steps to bring about discipline, to keep abuse from happening. And so I, I, I know, uh, you know, everyone knows that um, women are better than men at being women. We all know that. And men are better at being men than women. Men are better at being, yeah, being a man than being a woman. <laughs> Just sounds weird saying it that way. But I think you know what I'm saying. Follow our God-given roles. Follow the biblical roles that God has set out for us. And when we do that, the church will be in harmony. And, and the world will look at us in amazement because we are balanced in a way that honors God.